Mikey and Timothy are sitting right here. They always sit right here on the front row and just have known Hyken's um, testimony for many, many years and uh, so blessed by that. Just want to give a shout out to a, a, a couple of, uh, let me just say a couple of things to you as a body. Last week we had the opportunity to vote on a recommendation that the Council of Elders brought to the body of transitioning Josh Hansen from an assistant student pastor to the associate pastor of families and calling Tucker Kelly as the assistant pastor to student ministry. You voted on those things, supported those things, and by a strong 97% of the body, we have set these two guys apart to these positions. And tonight, we are going to be ordaining Tucker Kelly to the gospel ministry. So we're going to have a great time. So would you join me in welcoming Tucker as our newest pastor on staff? Great to have you, Tucker. Um, if you're not already signed up to be a part, as Josh said earlier, we encourage you to come tonight. It's going to be a great time of celebration. We want to honor all of our volunteers. We're going to have some, actually, drawings for our volunteers. They're going to win some prizes tonight. And we just want to give thanks to all those who serve us so well. One of my favorite authors and writers, you know, that I've mentioned to him, you before about him, his name is Chuck Swindoll. He's getting up in age, but he continues to put out some incredible devotional thoughts and some books. Years ago, he wrote a book called Killing Giants, Pulling Weeds. And in that book, he tells a story, a true story, of a man by the name of Leonard Holt. Now, Leonard Holt lived in a particular community where the people in the community really loved him. They respected him. They thought very highly of Leonard. Leonard did a lot of things that people respected. He was a company man. He worked for the same Pennsylvania paper mill for over 19 years. He worked in their lab, and he was a faithful employee in that business. When he wasn't in the lab, you could find Leonard with his family and with his kids pouring into their lives, or you find him as a scout leader, a Boy Scout leader. He was leading a particular troop of Boy Scouts, or he was at the volunteer fire department. He served in his community, or he was very involved in the life of his church. He and his family were very connected. People thought very highly of Leonard. Until one day, when Leonard took two pistols, stuffed them in the coat pockets of his jacket, and carefully, methodically went through the halls of the paper mill and began killing co-workers. After 30 deadly bullets were fired, he left a stream of people, longtime associates, friends, dead in the hallway. The entire community was shocked by this. No one ever anticipated anything like this coming from Leonard. I mean, his family was, was questioning, how could our dad do such a thing? Boy Scouts were asking, how can our troop leader do such an evil act? The fire department was at odds because they worked with him on a regular basis and they saw no hint or no danger of a man going wild like this. Their own church was grieving. How can this man that hands out bulletins Sunday after Sunday viciously take the lives of innocent people? When they started piecing together all of the parts of his life, what they discovered was this. Leonard did work 19 years at a paper mill. But during those 19 years, he was passed over repeatedly for promotions. Some of his best friends were taking those positions. 
Some of his co-workers who were with him for years who were less qualified were getting those positions. New people hired into the, the company were hired ahead of him. And seething deep within his heart, in the recesses of his soul, some faucet was turned open and this venom began to pour out of Leonard. And the very people who were promoted ahead of him were now in the cemeteries of that local community. Time magazine even picked up on this. And as Time Magazine ran a picture, a feature article of Leonard in the magazine, they had a picture of him, and underneath his photograph were these words, responsible, respectful, resentful. And we see this play over and over and over again in our culture, don't we? Just a couple of weeks ago in El Paso, we've seen a number of people who lost their lives by some crazed gunman who had a resentment towards people of a certain ethnicity. We saw it played over again in Ohio. We see it in schools. We see it in businesses. We see it all around. And this thing of resentment is something that is a dangerous enemy in the lives of people. And the reason it's so dangerous is it doesn't begin like anger that just explodes and it's over. Resentment is something that gets buried deep within the recesses of a human heart. And it festers for years and years and years until finally... The subterranean faucet is open, and the venom that comes out is unpredictable. But it's nothing new. Solomon, in all of his wisdom, thousands of years ago, wrote about resentment when he writes in Proverbs chapter 26. He says, like the glaze covering an earthen vessel or fervent lips with an evil heart. Whoever hates disguises himself with his lips and harbors deceit in his heart. When he speaks graciously, believe him not, for there are seven abominations in his heart. Though his hatred be covered with deception, his wickedness will be exposed in the assembly. It comes out. And let me just say this. Resentment isn't something that's reserved for people who have nothing to do with God. Resentment is something that can be found even in the hearts of God's people. As children of God, you and I are not exempt from the factors that can create resentment in us. As children of God, you and I are not exempt from the fleshly tendencies to hold other people responsible for our own failures. We all have the propensity to be able to develop a resentful heart. We've been looking at this series called Free. And all the ways that Jesus sets us free. And we've talked about the fact that in Christ we are free indeed. And then Paul gives us the warning. Do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. And while we are free in Jesus, the enemy wants to use all kinds of weapons at his disposal in his arsenal to enslave us again. And one of those things is resentment. This morning what I want to do is I want to talk about the nature of resentment. How does it manifest itself in our lives? And we want to talk about four ways that we can resist resentment in our lives. Now to help us to understand this, we want to look at the life of a certain Old Testament character. He's mentioned all through the Bible. He's mentioned in the Old Testament. He's mentioned in the New Testament. And it might surprise you that this particular biblical character struggled with the issue of resentment. His name is David. He's the king of Israel. 
He's one of the greatest leaders that Israel has ever known. God even calls him a man after his own heart. But in 1 Kings chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, we discover something in the heart of David that we would never have known apart from the Holy Spirit showing us this in writing. In this passage, we see something in David that, that, um, that no x-ray could ever reveal. But the Holy Spirit shows us something about him that surprises us. Now, here's the thing I love about God's word. God's word speaks the truth about God's own servants. You can tell that it's written by God and not by man because if men were writing about men, they have the tendency to make them look good. But God shows us, even his own servants, the faults, the failures, the struggles that they even deal with. And it's a reminder to you and me that you and I have the same propensities to deal with the same issues. So, in 1 Kings chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, here's the scene. David is an old man. He's about to die. But before he dies, he calls his son Solomon into the room. Solomon is going to be the next king. And before he hands over the throne to Solomon, he gives him some scripture. He gives him some advice. He passes the baton to Solomon. And he gives Solomon some wonderful advice in verses 1 through 4. Here's what he says. When David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon, his son, saying, I am about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong. And show yourself a man. Sounds good, doesn't it? And keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn. That the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying, if your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart, with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Wonderful words. Outstanding words. I mean, a godly man giving godly instruction to a godly son. Everything sounds great, right? Then you get to verse 5. And now we see something in David that we've never seen before. Moreover, you also know that Joab, the son of Zeruiah did to me. You know what Joab did to me. How he dealt with the two commanders of the armies of Israel, Abner, and the son of Ner, and Amasa, the son of Jether, whom he killed, avenging in time of peace for blood that had been shed in war, and putting the blood of war on the belt around his waist and on the sandals of his feet. Now he gives him advice. Act, therefore, according to your wisdom. <laughs> Act according to your wisdom, but <laughs> do not let his gray head go down to Sheol in peace. In other words, I want you to take care of Joab. I want you to kill him, to take him out. Then in verse 8, there is also with you Shimei, the son of Gerith, the Benjaminite, from Baharim who cursed me with a grievous curse on the day when I went to Mahanaim. But when he came down to meet me at the Jordan, I swore to him by the Lord, saying, I will not put you to death with the sword. Now, therefore, 
do not hold him guiltless. For you are a wise man. You will know what you ought to do to him. And you shall bring his gray head down with blood to Sheol. I want you to take him out as well. And when you read this, it's almost like, wow. I mean, he's just given all this positive instruction, how to be godly. And then what flows out of David's heart are some issues of resentment that must have been there for years. Now, what I want us to do is look through this passage, and I want to show you three specific issues of the nature of resentment. And we can see how it began to fester in David's own heart, and how it can fester in your heart, and how it can fester in my heart. So what's the nature of resentment? First of all, here's the first thing we need to see. Resentment is developed and nurtured when I keep a mental list of wrongs done to me. When I begin to write down, when I keep a mental list of the things that are done wrong by other people to me, it begins to develop an issue of resentment. Now, if you turn through the pages of Scripture, you won't find the word resentment in the Old Testament. You won't find it in the New Testament. You won't go find it in your concordance. You can look through the back of your study Bibles. You won't find it. But what we will find are some other words that paint the same picture. The Apostle Paul addresses this, for instance, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. It's called the love chapter. And in the love chapter, Paul lays out all the things that paint the picture of love. And of all places to bring up this issue of resentment, he does so in chapter 13, verse 5. He says, love does not take into account a wrong suffered. That word there in the Greek for account is an accountant's term. It's used for a bookkeeper. Here's what it literally means. It's a bookkeeper's term that means to record in a ledger, to write down certain things. Let me tell you what resentment is. Resentment is keeping a list. Resentment is writing in a ledger. Resentment is reminding yourself of the people and how they have hurt you. And you create this mental list so that you can pull back in your life when you think the time is right. I was reading about this man who was um, jogging through his neighborhood one day, and he got bit by a dog. And he didn't think anything of it, so he let it go for weeks and weeks. Finally, his leg began to get infected. He started feeling terrible. He knew something was happening in his body, so he went to his doctor, and he sat down with the doctor, and the doctor examined him. He said, sir, I don't know how to tell you this, but you've got rabies. He said, well, what do I need to do about it? He said, well, there's nothing you can do about it right now. You've let this go so far and so long that you are going to die. And I hate to tell you this. And the man said, do you have a pen and a pad? He said, yeah. So he handed the man a pen and a pad. And the man just started writing a list of names. And the doctor said, is that your last will and testament? He said, of course not. He said, what is it? He said, these are the names of the people I'm going to bite. You know what keeping a ledger does? It's a reminder of the people that you want to get even with. Because these are the people who have hurt you. These are the people who have caused pain in your life. These are the people that I'm not going to forget. So I'm going to write this mental ledger, and I'm going to remind myself of how these people have hurt me. That's exactly what David did. In verse 5, he says, what Joab did to me. What Joab did to me. And he couldn't forget what Joab... Now, Joab really didn't do anything to King David. 
He did something to King David's men in a time where Joab took revenge on his, his own loss in their life. But David saw that as disloyalty, and he never forgot it. What Shimei did, he cursed me with a grievous curse. When David and his family were leaving Jerusalem because Absalom, his son who was rebelling and was wanting to take over, reigning in David's place, David and his family fled. And as they were leaving, as they were leaving, Shimei comes out and he's throwing stones at David and he's cursing him. David's men pulled their swords and they said, let us go kill this guy. I want those guys to be my visitation partners, you know. And it's like, let us kill those guys. And David says, put your sword back. You don't know, maybe God's directing him to curse me. Boy, that sounded spiritual, didn't it? But David never forgot what Shimei said. And he wrote a list. Listen carefully. When you make a mental list, you are creating a list of people that you ultimately want to hurt and get even with. One of the worst things in marriage is to make a list with one another and to write things down and don't forget what's happening. Some people are making a list of those people in their family who have hurt them and who have spoken negatively about them. I won't forget you. Some people are making a list of those people on the job who, who maybe have mistreated them or they've gotten a promotion ahead of them and they won't forget that boss. And some people are making a list of what happens in the life of the church you know what they said about me? You know they didn't recognize me? You know I didn't get that award? And we began to make a list. Let me tell you, let me tell you about resentment. Resentment it doesn't begin being hysterical. Resentment begins being historical. Where everything is remembered. You see, it's a mental list. But here's the second thing about resentment. Resentment can fester for years before it's exposed in my life. It can be around for years. What happens is it begins deep within me, and it seems innocent enough, but what happens is it begins to boil over, over time. David was an old man. He had been the king for 40 years. And on his deathbed, all of a sudden, it comes out his anger and his hatred to Joab and Shimei. Do you know how long David carried that resentment against Joab? The events of Joab happened 33 years earlier. For 33 years, David was carrying this resentment. For 33 years, here is Ahab. Um, I mean, Joab. Ahab was another king. Joab. Joab is serving the king. Joab is fighting for the king. Joab is praising the king. He's rebuking the king. He's encouraging the king. And for 33 years, he had no idea that David hated him. Shimei, 20 years earlier. And for 20 years, David carries this mental list of Shimei. Now, here's the amazing thing. Everybody thought David was really spiritual and holy because he kept his men from killing Shimei. Who knows? Maybe it's not the Lord bringing it on. And yet in the recesses of his heart, what nobody knew was his anger towards this man. I read one commentator this week. He said this. He said, for 33 years, David killed Joab. 
For 20 years, David killed Shimei. Now, we don't know that. We don't know if David got up every single day and that's all he thought about. But here's what we do know. At the end of his life, David said what he wishes would happen to both of those men. It takes years and years to develop. When I was young in my ministry, one of the things I wanted to do was be involved in counseling. And one of the things I still do to this day is to counsel married couples. I counsel anybody who would like to come and see me, but I do a lot of post-marriage counseling. And I was a young pastor sitting in my office, and I had an appointment of a young couple, a younger couple, no, a middle-aged couple coming in for an appointment. They sat down, and I did what I normally do. We began with the niceties and stuff like that. And then I began with the man. I just said, well, look, let me begin with you. Why are we here today? Why aren't you, why, you and your wife meeting with me? And he looked at me. He said, I don't have a clue why we're here. And I thought, you know, most men I counsel in this situation, they all say they don't have a clue. Most men are clueless to this, okay? And he said, I, I don't know why we're here. I have no idea what we're doing here. And his wife looked at him. She said, you don't know why we're here? He said, no, honey. You mean to tell me you don't know why we are here today? He said, no. She said, I'll tell you why we're here. 20 years ago, you said. That's what she said. That's historical. And we both looked at each other in surprise because here's what happens with resentment. For 20 years, whatever he said built up in her until she got to the point where it came out. Resentment takes a long time. Here's the third thing about resentment. Resentment comes at a high expense. It comes at a high expense. There's a cost to resentment. Some people call resentment a cancer. Some people call it a, 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 a creature, a monster, a poison. And I do say that this, and I've said it before, resentment is you drinking a poison waiting for somebody else to die. And that's exactly what it is. But how do we define it in terms biblically? The writer of Hebrews gives a beautiful description of what resentment is. You know what he calls it? A weed. It is a weed that takes root in the human heart. He puts it this way, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many defile. Have you ever seen a weed in your yard? A weed loves to take over. If a weed gets in a flower bed, my goodness, they will choke out every single beautiful plant that you paid a lot of money to nurture to keep alive. And that weed will tear it up. That weed will take root. That weed will begin to spread and choke out everything that is beautiful. And this is what resentment does. It is a weed. Let me show you three things that it will do in our lives. Number one, it can control my life. Like a weed that takes over a garden, it can smother everything. And those beautiful roses that you once enjoyed, now all you see are the weeds that are suffocating it. Resentment does that in the human heart. It controls your life. When people are driven by resentment or bitterness, you know what happens? They're controlled by the people who have hurt them in the past. And now with the access of social media, with Facebook and Instagram, you can follow people's lives every single day. I'm thinking of a lady that I know who had resentment toward a particular person. 
And what she would do every single day is get on Facebook and watch what he was doing. Get on Instagram and watch his life. And she was controlled by his life. He had no idea what she was going through. But every single day, all she did was watch his life with bitterness and anger and wanting to get even. It'll control your life. The second thing it'll do, it'll cripple your health. Doctors, physicians tell us that a huge dose of resentment will create all kinds of physical problems within you. There will be ulcers. There will be lines on your face. There will be the heaviness when you walk. There will be maybe high blood pressure, maybe anxiety, even depression. All of these things flow because resentment destroys you physically. But here's the third thing. It can contaminate your relationships. You know what I notice about a weed? <laughs> a weed doesn't stay in its own yard. A weed grows everywhere. You ask my neighbor, my weeds are now all in her yard. And I'm really sorry about that, but that's her problem now. But, no. <laughs> but, but my weeds are everywhere. And so what happens is weeds never stay on a boundary line. They don't care about a fence. They do not like Roundup. But they spread. And here's the point. The resentment that David had infected his own son, Solomon. In verse 5 and in verse 8, he instructed Solomon what to do. Kill Joab. You know what Solomon did? He had Joab executed. Take Shimei down without peace. You know what he did with Shimei? He told Shimei, you cannot leave Jerusalem. The day you leave Jerusalem, we will find you and execute you. Simei left Jerusalem running after some slaves who left. And he came back and Solomon executed him. Why? Because the bitterness, the resentment did not stay in one place. It spread. And I want to tell you this. If you're a person of bitterness, if you're a person of resentment, if resentment is controlling your life, it will impact every relationship around you, in your children, all the relationships will know of your bitterness. So how do we get over this? How do we deal with this biblically? Let me give you four ways that you can resist resentment. And this is for every person in this room. Because some of you right now, you have some ledgers. Some of you right now, that resentment is building and building and you're not forgetting who hurt you. Some of you right now are even contaminating other relationships. And you're wondering how to get out of it. Some of you are on the edge of it or will be in a situation where you will be tempted to develop resentment. So how do we get out of it? Give me four, let me give you four things. Number one, take inventory of your thoughts. Are they healthy? Are your thoughts healthy? I would ask you this. If you had the freedom to let your thoughts go, where do your thoughts go to? Where do your thoughts go to? Do your thoughts go to the things of God? Do your thoughts go to relationships that are healthy and good? Or do your thoughts navigate towards people who hurt you? Do you see yourself as the victim, trying to get over things that have happened years ago? If your thoughts are navigating or, or, or naturally going towards people who have hurt you and to your mental list, resentment is an issue in your life. The Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, 
that we're to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Take your thoughts captive. That word in the Greek, take captive, is a beautiful picture. It's a picture of holding someone at sword point. Saying, taking this captive. You are to take words captive. Now, we don't use swords, so let's use it in a modern-day sense. He would be using and, and taking your thoughts at gunpoint and holding them captive to the obedience of Jesus. If there's a temptation for you to think about how people hurt you, hold that thing captive into the obedience of Christ and say, no, I set that person free. Well, you don't know what they did. It doesn't matter. I hold it captive to the obedience of Christ and I bring it up under the lordship of Jesus. Take your thoughts captive. Here's the second thing. Clarify your troubles. Are they even historical? Sometimes what happens is resentment begins to build up over the years and we even forget why we don't like people. We forget what they did. It's kind of like the Hatfields and the McCoys. Do you know that famous feud between the Hatfields and McCoys that took place in Pikeville, Virginia? Do you know what happened there? You know, to this day, people don't even know how that feud started. People don't even know why it started. Some people say it was because of a mule. Some people say it was because of a pig. They don't know. But what we do know is this, that Randall McCoy lost five children who were gunned down because of a feud. Devil Ansey um, Hatfield was a man who was so torn up and eaten by remorse and guilt that he later confessed his sins, came to faith in Christ, and was baptized in Island Creek. For him, there was a good outcome. But the danger was they lost sight of even why they were angry. So you have to ask, is it, can you even articulate why are you upset with people or you're holding people hostage? The Apostle Paul says this, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. Forget your past. Forget those who have hurt you. Forget those who have mistreated you. That is not your destiny. Your destiny is not in the past. Your destiny is in the future. Your destiny is in a relationship with Christ. And you move forward to the high calling of Jesus Christ that is before you. There's freedom. Number three. Rely on God's grace. Rely on God's grace. People who are resentful are grace-deficient people. They're the kind of people who will rest in the grace of God, but they will not extend the grace of God to other people who they think have hurt them. The writer of Hebrews again tells us about this. He says, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. That doesn't mean that you try to measure up to the grace of God. You can't earn God's grace. It wouldn't be grace. He's talking about come short of extending God's grace to other people. And that's what we have to do. When people hurt us, what do we do in the midst of that? We share the grace of God with them. And we set them free. Number four, throw away your ledgers. Throw away your ledgers. Get rid of your mental lists. Get rid of all of those names that you have posted in your mind of people who have hurt you. Set them free. Why? The Apostle Paul tells us why in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he is committed to us the word of reconciliation. 
the Father himself has set us free from our offenses to him. The Father himself does not hold our sins before his face. He does not count our grievances towards him. And if our Father, who has set us free from our offenses that led Jesus to the cross, who are we not to set others free who have hurt us? It makes no sense. Have you noticed how easy it is for a person to receive the forgiveness of God, but how difficult it is for us to extend that same forgiveness to people who have hurt us? That's the struggle with the human heart. And I would say this, any offense done to you does not compare to your offense done to Jesus. And what has he done for you and me? I want you to think of the day that he was nailed to the cross. I want you to think of all the humiliation that Jesus went through. All the beating, all the scourging, all the spitting, all the name calling. All the vile comments coming out of people as he went down the Via Della Rosa to the hill of Calvary. How he is mistreated by the Roman soldiers. How he's nailed to a cross. How he's lifted up publicly naked, humiliated before the world. How even the men who are crucified with him on either side are ridiculing him. The high priests are calling him names. And as he is hanging there, his last words were not, Father, see what they have done to your son. May your righteous wrath pour out on them and annihilate them. He didn't say that. Father, you are just and you are right and you always adhere to justice. May you punish every single person who has nailed me to this cross say that father you know how my life has been perfect in obedience to you will you glorify me now by destroying the wicked crooked generation of humanity he didn't say that his words on the cross were father what father what Some of you are carrying a list right now of people who have hurt you. And that weed has been growing in you. And there's been nothing more that you would enjoy than to get even. And the Lord Jesus is saying to you right now, release that. Forgive them. For some of you, it's a spouse that left you and abandoned you. And you have been looking forward to the day for that person to pay the debt. And God is saying to you right now, they owe you nothing. Release them. For some of you, it's a family member that's mistreated you and said things against you. And you want to get even because they were unjust. And God is saying, get rid of that ledger. It will destroy you. 
For some of you, maybe it's a child that has embarrassed you. And you have not had them in your home or had any kind of contact with them because you've been hurt so deep. And God is saying to you, reconcile that relationship. For some of you, maybe it's on the job because you've been passed over. Maybe a boss has unfairly treated you. Maybe you've been fired unjustly. And you're holding them responsible for your current situation. And God is saying, release them. Set them free. And take every thought captive to obeying me. And practice the ministry of reconciliation. You see, the thing is, if you don't let it go, it will grow. And it will consume. But today, if you can end that right now and submit it to the Lordship of Christ, set people free. If you're a child of God, it is unconscionable for you to walk in unforgiveness given what Jesus has done for you. Don't let a root of bitterness grow up and consume your heart and your life. You see, the enemy knows that will enslave you. And God knows that forgiveness will free you. You have a choice. The human heart does not want to let go. But the Spirit of God in you is saying, Burn that ledger. No one owes you anything. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed. I don't have to point to you, to your mind, the names that are coming up. Or the people who have hurt or the people who need to be released. Let them go. Right now, in the quietness of this moment, release them. Some of you this morning, there are really no people that you can think that you have resentment towards. But you know that you have the propensity to develop that. Ask God's grace to show you when ledgers are being formed and you submit those to the Lordship of Christ. If you're here this morning and you're not a believer, my friend, your greatest need is Jesus. He died for you. He died to release you from your sin penalty. He's the only one who can forgive you and give you a relationship with the Father where you walk in purity and holiness and newness of life. We are unapologetic here that Jesus is your only hope. 
please consider yielding your life to him and allowing him to change you from the inside out. And he will cleanse your life and give you freedom and joy and power like you've never known, but you must surrender. Right where you are, you can pray this prayer. To yourself, not out loud, just say, Dear God, I know that you love me. And I know that Jesus, your son, died for sinners like me. Right now, I surrender my life to you. I ask you to forgive me of my sin. And bring me into a relationship with you through your son. I believe he died on the cross. I believe he was buried. I believe he rose on the third day. I believe he is alive right now. I surrender my life to you. Forgive me of my sins. In Jesus' name. Father, I pray today that you would deal with our hearts in a way that we walk in your grace. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.